Well, friend, do you have any famous or infamous leaves hanging in your family tree? Perhaps you've seen in the past commercials from Ancestry.com advertising what they call Ancestry DNA. The DNA test that tells a more complete story of you, they write. Ancestry DNA provides richer connections to people, places, and possibilities. Through this blood test, they can map your family history and origin. Of course, the goal is for you, in doing this study, to find meaning in your life. The goal in their marketing is for you to find significance to your story through your ancestors' story. Perhaps you're not who you want to be. Perhaps your life hasn't turned out exactly how you hoped it would. And so, they market the sort of sadness that is part and parcel to many people's lives by appealing to their ancestors' past to find meaning and significance. Well, the problem becomes, of course, what do you do when you spend hundreds, thousands of dollars perhaps, uh, finding out about your past, only to find that your ancestors were more of a mess than you are? Or... What if you find that they're just ordinary people, never done anything significant, never invented some life-saving device, no real claim they lived and died and led an ordinary life? But what if you rather find that Your family tree, and perhaps your more recent family tree, is quite miserable and pathetic. This morning, we're going to consider a family who all throughout we thought was just ordinary. Just an ordinary family living in an obscure village, an agricultural town. Well, friend, as we consider this morning, upon closer inspection, this is not your ordinary family, but rather a family who quite honestly is a mess. Friend, is your family a mess? Is your family tree a mess? Is your ancestors before you and the ones following you a mess? Friend, there is hope for all of us today because God uses messed up people and messed up families to write his great story of redemption. Over the past four weeks, we've spent time gazing into this seemingly ordinary family, living in a small agricultural town called Bethlehem. No, we're, we haven't been in the birth narratives of Jesus. We, we've traveled back 4,000 years to the beginning of the town It has only been around for a number of decades, uh, perhaps even a hundred years now. And we have seen 
through the eyes of the main characters, Naomi and Ruth, their extreme poverty and their tremendous sorrow. Naomi has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She is left only with one daughter-in-law. The other has returned home. We have seen through the midst of their tremendous sorrow that God was providing for His people. And we saw last week that God had orchestrated providentially for Ruth to find favor with a local man named Boaz. An ordinary man. But unlike the the rest of his community, this particular man loved the Lord. He obeyed His word. And he sought to live a righteous life in the midst of pervasive and perverse wickedness. And last week we saw how the story was driving to a particular climax. And if you've read ahead, you you get a sense of some of the resolution. But I hope to show you this morning that this entire story's climax doesn't come until the end. If you're a first reader to this book, like the, like the Israelites would have been, it would have come at great shock to you to come to these last final verses. Oh, I thought this was a story about God saving these wonderful people who were faithful to Him in the midst of unfaithful times. I thought God was just working out a really bad situation for these poor widows and God was seen to be providential and sovereign over their life. Friend, I hope to show you this morning that this story, which seems unimportant and insignificant, is rather a part of a great story of redemption. That great story and the greatest story the world has ever known. Well, as we conclude here in Ruth chapter 4, I invite you to turn there to page 224. 224 in the Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can take that copy as our gift to you. We want you to have that, encourage you to read that, and know God better through it. But today we're going to finish this book, chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he came to the Redeemer. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Lelimelech and that belonged to Kelon and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began to nurse him. And the women of the neighborhood came and gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amminadab, and Amminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Saimon, and Saimon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. But friends, as we consider this text this morning, Admits the darkest days in the life of God's people, a light of God's grace shines through as He provides a King who will deliver God's people from their enemies and provide them rest. And our story this morning, as we'll see, foreshadows God's greatest provision in His Son, King Jesus. That this story was not merely about God's sovereign care of these people, but that God was working through the will of these people to bring about His will and His purposes by raising up a king who would redeem the people of God. Interwoven throughout the text are three stories I want us to consider this morning In our time, first, we'll consider the story before us here in chapter 4. 
Then I want us to step back a little bit and consider the story behind us. In other words, consider what led up to the events that took place here in chapter 4. And then lastly, I want us to consider the story beyond us as we see the narrator of this story pointing beyond the events taking place in Bethlehem to another event in Bethlehem many centuries later. Well, first, the story before us. We're told in verses 1 through 10 that Boaz goes to court. This is an ancient court setting, very unfamiliar to you and I. We we see strange things happening here in this text. We see uh, people taking their shoes off in order to confirm transactions. Uh, Imagine, Jerry, if that's what took place down at the bank every week. Uh, People took their shoes off when they uh, withdrew their money. Uh, That would be quite strange, wouldn't it? Uh, We see uh, very... Uh, different uh, kind of behaviors that even the language there, I'm sure little hairs on your neck began to stand up when you heard that Boaz bought Ruth to be his wife. This is very strange, but but nonetheless, what we see happening here is an ancient culture that was built in and hardwired into the people of God through the Word of God. All the way back in your favorite book of the Bible in Leviticus, Yes, I know, you, you, you read it often at night by your bedside. But in Leviticus chapter five, 25 and verse 25, we learn that God wanted His people to ensure that the land that they were inheriting continued through the families that they belonged to. The land was a reminder that God would provide and protect His people. It gave legitimacy to His people and legitimacy to the twelve tribes of Israel. And you'll remember way back when the Israelites had yet even left Egypt, God promised land to the twelve sons of Jacob. And each of them would have their allotment of land. And then when Moses took them into the promised land, and just at the precipice of it, he began to reveal God's purposes and how they would live and function in this new land. There were rules of the road that they had to follow. And one of them was this. That if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Now you'll remember all the way back in chapter 1, what happened to Elimelech? Well, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kelon, fled from Bethlehem because of a famine. They had become poor. And so they sold their land, perhaps leased it to someone else, and they fled to to Moab in order uh, for them to find food and provisions. And what we see happening here is that Naomi has returned and is seeking to gain possession back of this land. But they, she needs a redeemer to come and purchase it. Well, the law goes on to say, if a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it back and, and pay it back the balance in which he sold it. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. 
What we see Boaz doing here is redeeming the land. Ruth has gone to him in chapter 3 and said, I want you to marry me. I want you to perpetuate the name of my husband, Malon. And so Ruth, uh, Boaz, rather, because he's a godly man, an upstanding man, says, hold on, time out, I can't do it. There's someone closer, a relative that's closer to your dead husband and his father than me. We're not told the details, a second cousin, third cousin, or what the relation particularly is here. But Boaz, in providence, we see here in our story that the Redeemer, an unnamed man, his name is never mentioned here, is extended the opportunity to redeem Naomi's land, and he takes it up. Now, for you and I, as we think about this, as we're reading through this, we see a sense of tension. It's a beautiful story. The, narr- the narrator just crafts this uh, wonderfully. You just kind of slowly go through it. You're like, oh, this is wonderful, Ruth and Boaz. It's like happily ever after. And then all of a sudden, things begin to unravel very quickly, right? Wait a minute. No, 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 no. She's supposed to run away with Boaz. They're supposed to live happily. What is this other redeemer doing? He's going to buy the land now? It's quite interesting how Boaz withholds information, doesn't he, at the beginning? He says, oh, there's this land to buy. Ooh. Well, of course, more land means what? More profit. And so the man begins to think and, and wonder, okay, if I buy the lease of this land, if I purchase this, I will begin to make a profit off of this land immediately. And he's calculating in his mind how much profit he will make and how much gain on his return of his initial investment will happen. And then... Then Boaz, he's hooked him, and then he baits him, and he's got him, and he says to him, oh, wait, 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 there's one more thing, friend, one more thing. When you buy Naomi's land, Ruth comes along with it. And you think, what is happening here? Well, what we see is the converging of not only land redemption, but Leverite marriage. That's what we thought of last week. See, God provided not only to perpetuate the land and the the family name, but also to perpetuate family lines. This was a long-attested practice in the nation of Israel, going back even to, as we'll see in a moment, Judah and his son Ur. God's people had sought to protect the family name and their heritage, ensuring that these women would be protected. You know, it's so interesting that that the church and the Old Testament often gets a bad rap from feminists, thinking that that men sort of ruled tyrantly over it. Friend, just read your Bible. God was a lover of widows. He provided for them, and He protected them in this community. And this is just one of the ways He did so. Boaz here, we are told in the text, because of this Redeemer's unwillingness to purchase the land, and notice here in verse 6, because it would come at a great cost to him. Now, we could read into what maybe that cost was. Perhaps it was the fact that now he would not be renowned. His name his last name would be blotted out from the genealogies and Malon and Elimelech's name would be in his place from then until eternity. And for him, it came at too great of a cost. 
He would have hurt his own inheritance. Perhaps he had other family that when his dad or other relatives dies, he would have inherited the land. But now he can't because he has Elimelech's and Malon and Kelon's responsibilities. Regardless, we see then that Boaz redeems the land. And here's where he is taking off his sandals. And you think, well, this is strange. Why is the man going to walk around with one sandal now? Well, many scholars believe that what this is pointing to was a testimony that the the land that he walked on with his bare feet was his. It It was his footprint that was pressing into the soil as a testimony that this is my land. I have purchased it. No one can take it from me. And so we see in response to this, that Boaz receives a blessing from the elders. And notice here this blessing here that is extended to them. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate of the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Now, I want you to notice something throughout this entire story. If you were to go back, every time Ruth is mentioned, she is mentioned as Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. But here the narrator shifts the language in order to emphasize that she has now been redeemed. She is no longer the outcast. She is no longer the one who is separated from the the people of Israel. Now she is the woman. Friend, this is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 to refer to Eve. We begin to see that Ruth is being inserted into this story that has been unfolding since Genesis chapter 3. That God was raising up from the seed of woman one who had come. Before we get to that, look here again. They, they say, may she be like that of Rachel and Leah. Now, of course, these were the two sisters that raised up and had, gave birth to the 12 sons of Israel, which then became the 12 tribes of Israel. Rachel was barren, like Ruth, and Leah was an outsider, like Ruth. Ruth here embodies both matriarchs in the family. Rachel and Leah. And they pray that she would be a blessing and fruitful just like these two women were for Israel. Notice here also their prayer for Boaz. May you act worthily in Ephrah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Boaz was nobody. Boaz was was an old man. Just with his head down, plotting and being faithful to the Lord, going about business like everyday life. And the elders of the city, the the leaders of Bethlehem, there in Judah, desire for this man's name to be renowned. An unnamed redeemer and Boaz. As the story, as we'll see, is told, Boaz's name will go down as one of the great names among the people of Israel. Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who bore Tamar to Judah 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this woman. They pray for fruitfulness. They pray Genesis 2. Go therefore and be fruitful and multiply. This was the commission given to Adam and Eve that they would go and be fruitful. It is a reminder to you and I that we can find faith in faithless times. That in the midst of tremendous wickedness and sin and and, and rampant rebellion against the Word of God, we ought to have hope that we can be faithful even when everyone around us is unfaithful. Let us never excuse sin because it's normal in our culture. Friend, let me just encourage you in this way. This world is not getting better. It's not going to get better. There's not going to be some president that's going to save this country. There's not going to be a Congress seated in Washington, D.C. Friend, I've lived there for seven years of my life. Let me tell you, it ain't going to ever happen. It ain't going to happen. We ought never to put our hope in the politicians and the political leaders in this world. Should we be engaged in it? Yes. But we should never find hope in these things. Friend, Hollywood is not going to wake up tomorrow morning and decide to stop the moral and sexual revolution that has been rolling like a steamroller since the 1960s. They're not going to all of a sudden say, you know what, we're going to start producing films that don't have pervasive wickedness in them. You know, we'll pepper in a few Christian films. Friend, that is no hope to have. Our culture, our universities, our realms of education are not going to get progressively more conservative. Frankly, the Bible tells us that things will get worse before they get better. Then we'll know the end is near. We ought to be a people that understand that God rewards those who obey His Word even when everyone else disobeys it. But we are to be a light, a city set upon a hill. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? That we are to be a light, a beacon. We see God using the righteousness of Boaz to preserve a people. But again, as I said, there's a backstory, and I've hinted at it. And I want you to look again here, the story behind us. There's a little bit of a backstory happening here that the narrator of the book thinks that the reader knows and understands. And so this morning you might be, who are all these people? This is a strange kind of uh, deal. I, I really don't know who, who these folks are, and that's okay. Let me, let me catch you up a little bit. Verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez. Perez was a long ancestor of Boaz. Boaz was related to Perez. And you're like, well, who's Perez? Well, Perez is the son of Judah. At least the the one born by Tamar here. You think, well, that's nice. Uh, Judah had a nice little uh, wife named Tamar. Oh, not exactly. We go back to, to Genesis chapter 38. We find old Uncle Judah in the midst of the Joseph story. He's like that, you know, 
awkward uncle that you have in your family? That embarrassing family member? You know, the butt of all of your family jokes? Oh, you know, Uncle Judah. Man, he did it again, let me tell you. That's who Judah was. Judah was a joke to his family. He was so morally perverse, he was an embarrassment. He was an embarrassment to everyone. But it's interesting as we read on through the story of Judah's life, as Israel blesses his 12 sons, Judah gets the best blessing. You're like, what? Judah's the best up fellow. Why would you bless anything that came from Judah? Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That's royal language. That's kingly language. He's essentially saying, Judah, from your descendants will come a king who will rule and reign over the people of God. And they will be the one that that he leads. And they will serve him. Everybody in the room is like, "Uh, Dad, we know you're old. Are you sure? Do you know what he did? And everybody in the room says, well, what did he do? You know, the saying is that God God won't bless a mess is only half true. It is interesting here that God actually uses this messed up family line in order to bring about great redemption. In Genesis chapter 38, we are told that Ur, this is the firstborn of Judah, he died. And he was married to a woman named Tamar, the woman here in our, that's mentioned here in verse 17. And as it was, as we've already indicated in Leverite marriage, his secondborn son was to marry Tamar and continue Ur's name and perpetuate it into the future. But Judah's secondborn was even more wicked than his firstborn, and so God killed him too. And Judah, worrying that he's going to lose his thirdborn son and completely be childless, he puts Tamar out to pasture. And Tamar tricks Judah into a relationship which then bears a child. And his name was Perez. Through the sinful and wicked acts of Judah, God was preserving his promise to save his people. And the story of Genesis that carries over here in the book of Ruth is a story that God will not abandon His people. God will not leave them. And so we are told back in verses 13 through 17 that God provides a child. That, friend, you have to understand the tremendous pressure and the tremendous weight that is hanging over every time a child is born in the Old Testament. Is this the one? Is this the child who will finally and fully deliver God's people from their enemies? Is this the child? It is no unimportant point that Ruth has gone from childlessness to child. This is all pointing to the fact that God is the one orchestrating this plan. He is working out His sovereign plan in the life of His people. 
They made free choices, but he is moving all the pieces in order to bring about his purposes. And friend, one of the wonderful truths we see in this story is that of redemption. This is where we learn the biblical picture of it. God purchasing, not land, but our freedom. Friend, isn't it encouraging to know in many of the songs we sang today as we thought about our redemption in Christ is that sin no longer defines you. Widow, childless, barren, sinful, rebellious. You know, we put labels on everything, but God only puts one label on us in Christ. That's our label. We are in Christ. Our identity is enveloped in this truth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friend, you have a new identity. Just as Ruth was no longer Ruth the Moabite, but rather the woman who was to perpetuate the great name of Christ. There is a greater story here, even in the story we see beheld. It's found here in the words, unbeknownst to Naomi. Look with me here. The words given to Naomi there in verse 14. You'll remember Naomi didn't want to be called Naomi. She wanted to be called Mara, which meant bitter. She was like Job. She was naked and without anything in the world. The townspeople give her a new name. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more, than, more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This seems like a pretty significant child. For you and I, we're thinking, you know, seven kids, one kid. Seven kids can produce a lot more than one kid. This is how blessed this one kid will be. And as the story unfolds, we see a greater story was really going on. Now throughout this, I have alluded to that refrain from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And if you've ever studied the book of Judges, you'll know that this refrain is a repeated refrain throughout the book to indicate the the underlying problem in Israel. I'll read it to you again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I've intentionally, over the last four weeks, emphasized the second part and not the first part. But the reason why the second part happened was because the first part hadn't been fulfilled. The reason why there was pervasive wickedness and sin is because God's people had forsaken God to be king and there was not yet an image-bearing king of the one true and living God. But the story of Ruth is a story about how God 
is redeeming the wickedness of his people by providing a king. King David. The king who we learn about in the book that follows 1 Samuel. A man after God's own heart. God fulfills this promise to his people by providing them a king. First, the people went to Saul, a wicked king. Saul was the one who won the People's Choice Award. But then came King David. But as we read on in the Bible, even King David failed to be a good king. He was the greatest king of Israel. And he came from tremendous grandparents. Boaz and Ruth, his grandparents. Maybe your grandparent today, imagine. Your grandchild. Your great-grandchild. But even as David has failed to be the king that God needed him to be, the prophets who came after David promised there would become another king from David's own family line. From the line here of Boaz and Ruth, One who would finally and fully deliver God's people. And as the people declared here in verse 15, that He would be a restorer of life. He would give rest to His people. This one was promised. In Isaiah chapter 11, the root of Jesse, mentioned here as a descendant of Boaz. Or in Jeremiah 23, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Or here, as we heard the elders declare there in verse 11, that he would be renowned in Ephrathah and in Bethlehem. Hear the words of Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of days. You know, as you consider the wonderful story that God is telling, it is by no accident as you read in Matthew chapter 1 in the lineage of Jesus, That these names, well, they show up again. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amonadab. And Amonadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth. No, Matthew understood because Jesus had revealed to him that he was the long-awaited king. That he was the one who would fully and finally deliver God's people from their sin. This is our Redeemer. His name is Jesus. And Jesus has come to redeem you and I by giving His life. He didn't come to purchase land. He came to purchase people. And He purchased people, a bride, just as Boaz purchased his bride. 
So Jesus came and purchased His bride, the church. And the cost of our redemption was His sacrifice, His death, His life in exchange for ours. And the Bible tells us that while He died and laid in the grave for three days, He rose again as a vindication that He purchased our redemption. Just as Boaz took that sandal off. So Jesus rose again to testify that He has purchased a people for His own possession. Friend, how will you redeem yourself? Will it be by being a better version of you? You know, a good person? Will you find it in moralism? In self-righteousness? Perhaps you'll find your redemption through religious activities. Fulfilling a list of religious duties like attending church and going to Sunday school and giving lots of money to the church. Reading your Bible and praying. Will it be by thinking that God loves you no matter what? I mean, after all, God is love, we read in the Bible. And He will in the end just accept me how I am. And all those ways, though seemingly good, will all fail you. They will all fail because they miss one fundamental problem, and that is you. Friend, you are not a fixer-upper. You are not one cosmetic surgery away from perfection. No, the Bible says you are a corpse. And no amount of makeup will ever make a corpse not look like a corpse. No, there is a greater, truer redemption through Jesus Christ. And friend, no matter how messed up your family is, no matter how messed up you are, do not find your significance in the things you've done or the people before you've done. Find your significance in this great story of redemption that God has been telling from the beginning of time. From before the foundation of the world, God had purpose to redeem a people for His own possession. That's you. And that if you will believe in Him by faith, you too can be a part of this great story and you too can be a new creation. Through faith in Christ, you get a whole new set of documents, a new birth certificate, a new family tree. If by faith you believe in Christ, you are part of the family of God, the church of the ascended and the risen Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that by faith we would believe that You have redeemed us by the blood of Christ. That You've been about redeeming us before we were ever formed in our mother's womb. While we were yet unknown, we were known to You. And You have been orchestrating the events 
of human history in order to bring about your great work of redemption. And you are still at work today, saving sinners for your glory and inviting them to be a part of this great story. Father, may we find our significance in this new family tree. Not in the brokenness of this world, but in the new life to come in Christ. Help us, we pray, to know this for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.